this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 94. We're recording on Thursday, February 19th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Amanda Nelson this week while Jeff is out, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Good morning. Having a little girl huddle this morning. Girl gang. I'm going to hang a no boys allowed sign on our treehouse pretty soon. Girls rule and boys drool? Something like that. Something. I don't know. I mean, we do like we like the boys. We'll keep JK. Jeff. We're going to keep you, Jeff. Don't worry. We uh, love the fellas. <laughs> we do. We have the good fellas at Book Riot, but not the like monster <laughs> no. good fellas. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think my coffee just kicked in all at once. So the rest of this is going to be fun. Uh, interesting news this week. Uh, it seems that Dr. Seuss is not content to let Harper Lee have the spotlight. So uh, we heard earlier this week from the Chicago Tribune by way of, I think, the Associated Press that more than 20 years after his death, Random House Children's uh, is going to be publishing a recently discovered manuscript by Dr. Seuss called What Pet Should I Get? Uh, And it's coming on July 28th. They also plan at least two more books that are based on materials that were found in 2013 in Dr. Seuss's home in La Jolla, California, uh, that his widow and his secretary found. So what pet should I get? It was written between 1958 and 1962. What else are we going to discover? I don't know. I was thinking, like... um, Maybe a new Kurt Vonnegut book would be cool. A new Kurt Vonnegut book would be so cool. Um, oh, who else? Who else? I've been trying to think about like what would really, I mean, aside from like an eighth Harry Potter book, which I know you and Jeff talked about when you did the Harper Lee news. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think we're starting to come into this uh, time when authors are so much more digital than they used to be that we're, we're not going to be getting these kind of discoveries. Yeah. Like, anymore. Because, like, nobody's got piles of papers right. laying around, you know? Yeah. My my friend Ellen Brown wrote a book a couple of years ago called Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, and it was a history of the book and the movie, but, like, the life of the book in publishing, and it was before international copyright existed. So, like, Margaret Mitchell is one of the reasons that we have internet, the international copyright laws that we have, or she at least got the ball rolling on those. But one of the details is that she had, like, one draft 
of Gone with the Wind that she, you know, had like was stacking the chapters in different places in her house. And it would be like <laughs> chapter 27 was used to like prop up the rickety leg of the chair <laughs> that was uneven. And so she like gathered them all together and took them to New York. And that was the one copy of the book. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, but that those days have to be mostly over, right? Since people are writing on the computer. I guess <laughs> that unless, gives me heart palpitations. I mean, I hope they're backing things up in the cloud. But like, I guess it's possible that if you have like your one Mac that you do all your writing on, and you're not backing things up, and the Mac dies, or you think it dies or something that like the one existing copy of the draft could be living in that computer for people to find after your death. But I don't know. I just don't know what else would be quite as exciting as Harper. Like nothing compares to Harper Lee. Like, of course, we'll always take more Dr. Seuss. But it's not really an exciting question of what pet should I get? Like, what's that going to be about? It's going to be rhyming with funny, whimsical animal. It's the same characters from One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. Oh, okay. According to this article. So it's not really new that it's not mm-hmm. that new maybe if we got a new maurice Sindak, that would be ah, cool that would be cool if somebody well, discovered mm-hmm. so. or um like if in 30 or 40 years from now we got like new shell silverstein oh yeah secret shell silverstein would be fun i yeah i just don't know anyway there will be new dr <laughs> seuss you can talk about what kind of pet should you get. And I, I realized when the title came out that you have to have a certain accent to make that title sound rhymy. Like, I'm just Southern enough that I read, <laughs> what pet should I get? Yeah. <laughs> what pet should I get? Yeah, and that's not right. How many syllables is get supposed to have? Uh, it just doesn't is, there, is there a Y in, in get? get? <laughs> Bless your heart. <laughs> Anyway, if you like Dr. Seuss and who doesn't, you can look forward to July 28th and then to whatever else Random House Children's is going to have. There's at least two more um, manuscripts that were found in his home. And I guess the take home shot here is if you're a writer, make sure that stuff is easy for your spouse who's left behind and your secretary to find Mm -hmm. (laughs) or your lawyer, whoever. Whatever. Uh, Before we go further into the news, we want to thank our first sponsor, Squarespace. This episode is brought to you by them. Uh, Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7. Uh, And you can go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. Um, Both of us know from experience that building a website in the olden days of the internet (laughs) could be quite a challenge. Uh, You had to set it up all yourself manually. I learned like little bits and drabs of HTML on the fly by Googling like how to make this thing work. (laughs) Uh, If you had to edit the site, it was easy to break a link or even to break the whole site by putting in just one wrong piece of code somewhere and things as simple as like changing the font color could be a headache or moving trying to move your background image around from your homepage. Um, but now we have Squarespace and they make building beautiful websites easy to do without breaking a sweat. Uh, if you're new to Squarespace, you should definitely check it out for whatever project you're thinking about. 
almost everyone has some kind of reason to have a personal website, even if it's just a home for your resume, for your work, to live online, to build a portfolio. Maybe you're selling some things that you'd like to sell. Maybe you are opening a business, um, be it digital or an analog, you know, bricks and mortar business, because I hear people still start those. (laughs) Uh, You need a website that looks good and is clean and is easy to manage. So if you've been hearing about Squarespace for a long time, now you can check out Squarespace 7 as well. There's a redesigned user interface to make it even easier to drag and drop the elements of your design in and out. There's now integration with Google Apps. So if you want to have, you know, your .com be at the end of your email address, you can build that with Google's Gmail, but have it be, you know, at bookriot.com or at your business.com. It also integrates with Google Spreadsheets. And now they have a partnership with Getty Images, so you can access more than 40 million high-quality photos to use on your site for just 10 bucks an image, uh, which is great. Stock photos can become very expensive uh, depending on what you're looking for. And Getty Getty Images has a huge library of beautiful photos for you to choose from. There's also 15 new design templates in Squarespace 7 in addition to the ones that were already there. So you can browse based on whether you're having a home for your restaurant online or your new shop or your personal portfolio or whatever and pick a design template that makes sense. Read about all of this stuff at squarespace.com slash seven. It's simple and powerful. There's a beautiful design and... In case you do still feel tempted to break things, they have 24-7 live chat support and email support. So there's always someone there that you can say, is it going to break a thing if I do this? Or, oh, no, I think I broke that thing. (laughs) And these people are trained to handle that. They will help you out. Squarespace starts at just eight bucks a month and you get a free domain name if you buy Squarespace for a year. So it can look just as professional in the address bar as the design of your site looks. And, and, and there's responsive design, which I don't think we can overstate the value of these days. Uh, Responsive design makes your website scale to look great on any device. So whether someone is looking at it on a tiny iPhone 5 screen or on a giant iMac screen or anything in between, your site will scale up and down with all of the elements moving appropriately so that no matter who's looking at your site or what they're looking at it on, they'll have a, a great, wonderful experience. You can start your trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. So when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code RIOT to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Book Riot podcast. Again, that's promo code RIOT at squarespace.com. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. Where do you want to go, Amanda? Zuck, Zuck. (laughs) Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. So we've been following... Mark Zuckerberg's year in books and kind of nothing happened after the first one, but this is interesting. Why don't you tell me what's happening? Okay. So Zuckerberg's kind of sort of Facebook book club situation. It started with the end of power. And then after that, I never really heard anything about it, but now this is his fourth book he's selected and it's, uh, Eula Biss's, um, on Immunity, an inoculation, which is a nonfiction collection of essays about vaccines. So Zuckerberg is wading into the vaccination kind of debate with this book, which is surprising to me. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, 
On Immunity was one of the big titles of 2014, uh, award-winning and highly acclaimed, and for lots of wonderful and totally justified reasons. I thought it was the, it's the kind of book that everyone should read. And if your Facebook feed is anything like mine, the only thing people have been arguing about more than vaccines lately is the Fifty Shades of Grey yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is just a resurfacing of all the arguments that people had about Fifty Shades of Grey a few years ago. But Two that's beside ago. the point. I wonder, I'm really curious about what drove this selection for him. Like, uh, is Mark Zuckerberg really interested in having a conversation about vaccines with people on Facebook? Or was someone at Facebook like, hey, you know, the thing that people are talking about on Facebook right now is vaccines. And so maybe if you picked a book about that, you would get more attraction in your book club, because uh, Zuck wants this to rival Oprah. Yeah, which it is not. It is not so far. And the first selection did have a big sales bump, and there was a bunch of coverage about that sales bump, and the publisher like selling out of it overnight. Or I don't think they're notifying publishers in advance that this is happening. So the number of copies that are out in the world is the number of copies that are available uh, to people, which on immunity, I think is still getting lots of good buzz. So there are probably a bunch of those. But I imagine that the folks at Grey Wolf Press are like trying to figure out how quickly they can make more of them. It's, it's going to be interesting to watch. I think this might be the Facebook book club that I try to participate in. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's Jeff the only one that I've cared anything about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and it's the most Facebook thing to experience. Like, now Mark Zuckerberg is going to really see what an unmoderated conversation yes. about not just about a book, but about vaccines looks like on Facebook. Um, I think this was such a smart pick and for him. It, yeah, it's I hope that it has good effects, whether that's what he intended it or not. Like it says at the bottom of this piece that you found from The Guardian that it's a relatively uh, short book, one that you should be able to read in a few hours. And yes. Some of the criticism of this book club so far has been that um, he's picking one book every two weeks. And, you know, Facebook being what it is, people have complained that they can't read their books that quickly um, or they don't want to be reading that much, which, OK, like newsflash, you don't have to participate in the Facebook book club. But it seems like he's trying to address some of those concerns. Like if we're going to stick to this every two weeks schedule, then we should pick some books that are not long and intimidating for people to finish in that time. This one's a thinker though. It's not like, it's not a fast short book. <laughs> no, I would, you know, and I'm starting to wonder, like, obviously, he's got access to so much data about what people are talking about on Facebook. And I wonder if that had anything to do with the selection of this. Mm -hmm. Because it's obvious that like you said, like 50 Shades of Grey and vaccinations are all anybody's talking about right now on yeah. Facebook. So I don't know, I have questions, Which I have questions. I mean, it, it's, it seems shady to, you know, be able to mine all of that data, but also putting books in front of people that are about the topics that the people are already discussing. Right. That seems to me like a good service to the users of Facebook and a, a clever way to get more people to participate. If you're like, hey, this is the thing you're already interested in. And so now let's read a book and talk about it. Um, this looks to me like a move in the right direction. Like the first book um, seemed to be Zuckerberg picking a book that he liked and or that he, you know, is expecting to like and thought people should read. And that element of I think you should read this or this book is important will probably be part of every selection that he makes. But this seems to be more of a step towards 
I think this book is important, but also I think you people will all benefit uh, from taking a look at it. It's a fascinating read. She looks at vaccines through a whole bunch of different lenses and and why we are afraid of vaccines through a bunch of different lenses, including stuff that goes back to like vampire mythology. Wow. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, Eulabus is so smart and Grey Wolf just had a huge hit with the book, but the Facebook thread for it already, you know, has people ranting about the statistics about unvaccinated children and who's most likely to not vaccinate their children. Um, People posting links to their own books that are related or not related at all. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody moderate this thread. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it says, you know, please keep or feel free to discuss the book in the comments here, but please keep all conversation relevant to this book. Yeah, um, yeah, right. Which sure, like that's a great request, but who? No one is moderating this. Like there is Good no one that. wielding a ban hammer saying, "Put your self promotion links," and you're yelling away. This conversation is not about the book. Like, I don't think there's anything in this thread so far that's actually about the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is such an interesting, uh, the, the concept of the book club and the things that he's picking, it's, it's making me think about Zuckerberg in a mm, new way, mm-hmm. which is like, it's, I hate the idea of a personal brand or whatever. And I guess Facebook in reality is this guy's personal brand. But in my brain, Mark Zuckerberg is this still 19 year old tech bro who doesn't know anything about life and is just running some social, you know, like yeah, yeah. he has the social network to me, even though now he's like in his thirties <laughs> and is obviously knows what he's doing. But every time he picks a new book and it's interesting, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. and it's actually interesting. I'm like, Oh, maybe he's kind of, maybe he's thoughtful. Yeah. You know, like I never thought about whether or not Mark Zuckerberg was smart. I always thought of, I always thought he was just kind of lucky mm. and techish. But I don't know. Or that like tech smarts are different from your reading smarts or something. Right. Or from being like actually valuable as a thinker and influencer in society. Like you Mm -hmm. you stumbled upon this great social network business idea is sort of in my mind what what Zuckerberg consisted of entirely. But now I'm like, well, he's obviously thinking about the effects that his influence have on users of his thing. So Mm -hmm. maybe he's not as... Not dumb, but not as <laughs> dunderheaded as I thought. <laughs> I never thought he was dumb. I just, you know. Dunderheaded. That's such a great underused word. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's, it is it is interesting, like, because Facebook is such a scourge so much of the time yes. now, and it's it can be so unpleasant. It's hard to remember really how revolutionary it is and what mm-hmm. a smart thing it was, like, I was in college when Facebook came out and I remember like, you know, you waited to get an invitation invitation, from someone else who already had a Facebook account. And it was very much that like it sort of instantly replaced AOL instant message, um, which, yeah, I'm in my mid 30s, folks. (laughs) I remember angsting about my away message, but it was revolutionary and huge. And so I think I haven't quite thought he was a dunderhead so much as that he cared more about building the thing and valuing getting as many people in there to talk to each other than he did about helping us speak to each other in a better, more human way and having a good impact. Like Facebook can do a lot of great things, but it also gives rise to a lot of really disgusting, gross things. Yes, Uh, Yes. And we know that just moderating a page about books and a page about comics, the the stuff that gets spewed onto like news and politics sites or parenting sites or feminism sites, Facebook pages is is 
worse by orders of magnitude. And that's not the way that I want humans to interact with each other. But if his books, if he's reading things that are making him think differently about the issues that we're talking about in society and that have the potential to impact the way that other Facebook users think about those and interact with each other, I'm all for that. I would like to nominate the empathy exams by Leslie Jameson to be the next selection. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Um, like that's the conversation I want to see. Uh, I want bad feminist. Oh uh, yes. I guess actually, no, that's the conversation I wish could happen, <laughs> but like Facebook being what it is, I don't know that it would actually be useful. That's where I really feel torn is like, it's great for him to be putting these books out there, but then the conversation is so unmoderated and it's just one big open thread that, is anything productive coming out of this other than Zuckerberg pointing people towards books? And I, I guess, think that's the only thing. I think it, the signal boost that he's giving these books is the is the value, not necessarily the conversation happening on his. Th- that's obviously garbage. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I can live with it. Like if that's the only benefit is that Zuckerberg or someone with his size audience is pointing people toward books. Uh, yeah, I can get on board with that. And well, I'll that's pro- kind of what Oprah did. I mean, yeah. she wasn't, I don't remember necessarily any huge, big, interesting conversations happening around the, the books that she was selecting, but I do know that I had never heard of Toni Morrison until Oprah picked her for her. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's the value that Oprah had too. So it's not necessarily. Yeah, that's true. And Oprah has, you know, if not made some author's careers, she has boosted them in measurable and irreplaceable ways. Um, I don't know. Yeah, the hate that Oprah gets for her book club, I do not understand. I mean, this is a rant for another time, but let me just put that out there. (laughs) That I do. Every time we talk about Oprah's book club on our social media, people just come down on her like, oh, I would never read anything. Like, really, you would never read Steinbeck? What is wrong with you? Anyway. (laughs) Right. Steinbeck, Toni Morrison. Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, yeah, she picks total pop culture garbage no well like she has picked some new agey woo woo like spiritual stuff as well but there's an audience for that too america is huge and oprah's audience is a huge slice of america and so she's gonna try those kinds of things out like the current selection is ruby which i believe is a debut novel um that the granted he was one of the editors of it but a, a friend at random house told me um is the closest thing that he's ever encountered to being a beloved sequel. So like if somebody is even willing to put a new writer in the same, even approaching the same kind of class as Toni Morrison, I'm going to pay attention. And I saw Ruby get some buzz in the literary circles online. But when Oprah picks it, that busts a book out into mainstream accessibility and people pick up the book that either wouldn't have heard it before or uh, wouldn't have picked it up on their own before for a variety of reasons. Uh, her recommendation goes a long way. And I guess this is the very beginning. I'm sure people were skeptical of Zuckerberg in the very beginning, or people are skeptical of Zuckerberg now in the very beginning in the same ways that they were skeptical of the Oprah book club. So what's the thing I hope for? I guess that the Zuckerberg thing will get some traction, that he'll figure out how to make selections that people are interested in and pick books that challenge them and that are important and bring some attention to books and writers that not only we can benefit from reading and that more people should read, um, but that it'll become a useful thing for the reading public. Maybe that non-readers will give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Go to town, Zuckerberg. 
do it. I mean, what, <laughs> are we really going to complain about like one of the most powerful people on the internet talking about books? <laughs> I'm nope. not. <laughs> and his collections have been diverse and strange and interesting. And I just, I have no complaints. Yeah. And there's going to be like 20 more of them this year. You do you, Mark. <laughs> I give you my permission. <laughs> you know, you can just drop into the thread there on Facebook and <laughs> like maybe some clapping emojis and some support for Zuck to pull his little red wagon. <laughs> Speaking hard. of how he has selected diverse titles. <laughs> ah, there it is. There it is. I got to up my segue game when Jeff's <laughs> not around. Um, we talk so much about the way that d- books are read and the value of having diverse books published. And you have just wrapped up a diversity in publishing and reading FAQ series with a few of the other contributors at Book Riot. So we just want to give a shout out to Melinda Lowe. Um, she runs a Tumblr called Diversity in YA. It's diversityinya.tumblr.com. Uh, she's also a young adult author, and she focuses on all kinds of diversity, uh, racial diversity, diversity of uh, genders, gender identities and sexual orientations, disability, and looks at how uh, characters that have those diverse features are received in books. And she's just wrapped up a four-part series on her blog about diversity in book reviews. And so she's looking at the people who are in positions of authority who review books um, and we're talking about like Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and big mainline industry publications that review books and that set the tone for booksellers and libraries and teachers about which books to bring into their classrooms and stores, how those reviews address and respond to diverse characters. And there is, it is fascinating. She yes. does close read, these great close readings of reviews where she points out a reviewer responded to a disabled character in this way, or a reviewer saw that a character had a, f- a group of friends that were both racially diverse and had a diversity of sexual orientations. And the reviewer said this was unrealistic. So let's unpack why a person would think that a teenager having a diverse group of friends is unrealistic. And then let's talk about how that that's a problematic thing to state. It is problematic to just state as a fact that it's unrealistic that someone would have a diverse group of friends when that's really a reflection of the reviewer's experience and not of the book's value. Um, And that statements like that by reviewers have the potential to prevent books from being bought and read that might otherwise be bought and read and have great impact. It's so smart. It's really, really great. And I think it does a lot to kind of uh, dispel the notion that I hear a lot and I addressed it in the the FAQ series that, you know, people just want to, I just want to read a good story is what people say whenever Mm. you bring up diversity but in reality, the the thing that you consider a good story and the books that you pick up when you're at Barnes & Noble or you're shopping on Amazon or whatever is the thing that's being sold to you. And the book ended up in your hands through this chain of influence. Right. And at every stop on this chain of influence from the bookseller to the publisher to the editor to the agent, there is systemic racism and prejudice. And so, like, no book ends up in the hands of a reader by accident right? or because... It's just a better story than a story written by somebody who's disabled or a story written by somebody who's black or who has, you know, has a, a, a different gender identity than you. It's just that, that whole concept bothers me. And her uh, breaking it down like this was so fascinating. And like when she talks about how um, she I don't remember the name of the book, but a YA novel that has a lot of Spanish in it mm-hmm. and a reviewer called for a glossary oh. because she didn't understand the Spanish terms. And I've seen that before in 
reviews and it, it bothers me, but I can never like put my finger on why. But she talks about how that when you demand a glossary, you're just presenting Spanish speakers as as other as like the as English and white people being the norm and books should be published in such a way that caters to them, despite the fact that when it comes to YA, most kids in public school now are not white. Right. So not only is it prejudice, it's also completely untrue. The thing that, you know, that the yeah. prejudice that exists, is, it's not real. Yeah, so. that comes up with Spanish words. Foreign words are often italicized in, mm-hmm. in dialogue in books. And there's been a really interesting conversation among some writers, at least writers I follow on Twitter, and I think they're writing about it um, all over the internet, but about the problems of being, of, you know, forcing someone to italicize their foreign language words um, to point out that this is a foreign language or to guide readers around them or whatever. Um, the Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow um, by Juno Diaz contains, mm-hmm. you know, a ton of Spanglish. Yeah. And it's it's great. Um, I don't remember looking up so many words reading one book as I <laughs> as I Googled, but like and this isn't like a pat myself on the back thing, but I think as readers, that's our job. Like we're reading because we are curious about the world in some way, or we want to hear some kind of story. Um, and it books open up our worlds to many things. And so when you come across a new word, whether it's a word in English you've never heard before, or a word in a different language that you don't know, the response is not, there shouldn't be so many of these foreign words in this book, but clearly the author put this word here for a reason and maybe I should figure out what that word is so I can understand that reason. This bothers me so much. Like the idea that elevated language in English in a book, like a book that you're reading, you come across a word that's so big that you've never heard of and you don't know the definition of, you go look it up. And we look at that as like, oh, that author is intelligent and erudite Mm -hmm. because they're including all these words I don't understand. But the minute that that author is brown and is using a, a word that you don't understand because you weren't born in a country that speaks it, now it's stepping on your toes. Yeah, there's a great Juno Diaz quote um, from, I think, from a talk that he gave or an interview where he says, people are willing to read a book that is like half in Elvish, but you put in a couple words of Spanglish and everyone loses it and thinks, you know, that we're coming for you. (laughs) Yeah, that they're trying to take over. And that's, it's just a true thing about the way that many readers respond to books, um, and we we see it all the time in responses to things. Um, at Book Riot, just yesterday, Jen Northington wrote a piece for Book Riot where she gender swapped, and she made a diverse gender swapped cast for the Lord of the Rings movies. Like if she got to imagine the Lord of the Rings any way she wanted with any cast and have the characters be uh, any gender, but really pulling based on the traits and not the physical descriptions that Tolkien gave, what would she do? Um, And so she conducted this thought experiment and we have it on the site. And there are responses like, well, you have to be true to Tolkien's vision of these characters being white. And it's like, you you can be on board with the existence of elves, but we can't be on board with the existence of a brown elf or the possibility of a brown elf as if the elf being of a, of any race that's not white changes the story in a fundamental way you need um, to rethink your life if that's a thing that bothers you like i i i say i'm sorry but i'm really not like that is just rage again flames on the side of my face <laughs> <laughs> and it's so we see it all the time and and we know that this is a way that some readers respond to stuff. And so I'm I'm glad to see Melinda Lowe addressing this. I'm glad to see her addressing book reviews in particular. And she even points out in the series that um, she's not just criticizing the reviewers, but the publications that 
uh, she's pulling from are publications where the reviews are all edited. And so it's on the reviewer, but it's also on editors of literary yes. publications to talk to their reviewers or like in our jobs to talk to our contributors about the ways that we discuss diverse books and about, you know, small but insidious things like there's too much dialect here. Okay, well, who gets to decide that there's too much dialect? And is the reason you think there's too much dialect because this is unfamiliar to you? Because there are plenty of readers that will recognize and relate to and understand that dialect. And not every book is intended just for your preferences. Yeah, <laughs> as an individual. Like, how is this? It shouldn't be surprising, but it's totally surprising to a lot of people, I think. I'm just holding just, down. I'm holding down my anger. Okay, right take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about something that's both good and bad now. Uh, okay. You mentioned just a few minutes ago about how um, we know the majority of kids enrolled in public schools today are uh, not white kids. And a number that we've come back to over and over on the show and on the site for the last few years has been the stats that are put out by the Cooperative Children's Book Center, uh, which is based at the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Every year, they uh, receive as many children's books as publishers will send them. And then they go through and they document the number of those books that are by or about African Americans, American Indians, uh, Asian Pacific and Asian Pacific Americans and Latinos. And they put those in the context of, you know, all the books published with the assumption that aside from these people of color that they're documenting the, the authorship and presence of in children's books, the vast majority of the remainder are by and about white characters. So the 2014 numbers came out. Uh, the CCBC estimates that about 5,000 children's books were published last year. They received 3,500 um, at the center. So their stats are based on those 3,500 that they received. Of the 3,500, 263 were by or about African Americans, which is 7.5% of the 3,500. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's not close to the census numbers of the actual presence of African Americans in the United States. Um, and it's nowhere close to the numbers of kids that are African American. Uh, of the 3,500, 53 were by or about American Indians. That's 1.5%. 240 of the 3,500 were by or about Asian Pacific and Asian Pacific Americans, which is 6.9%. And then 125 of the 3,500 were by or about Latinos. And that is just 3.6%. That is some crazy craziness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this is data about the disparity between who's here and who is in the books and writing the books that we are putting in front of our children. This is so much worse to me than the issues in adult publishing. Because in adult publishing, usually when we talk about uh, diversity in adult literature, we talk about how the United States is one-third people of color when it comes to uh, the adult population and all of that. Uh, but kids are way more than that. Like Kids in the U.S. are way more likely to be not white than they are to be white. The population of children in this country is completely, it's a completely different makeup than the, than the adults. Than the adults. And so this is just so much worse. Like, even if you thought that only a third of kids in the U.S. were people of color, 
it would be bad, but it's actually more like half. Yeah, this brings the total <laughs> to about 19.5% of these 3,500 children's books that the CCBC looked at last year were by or about people of color. And that's up against more than 50% of school children in the United States being people of color. And like you're saying, more than a third of, a, of US adults being people of color. Um, so the numbers are still abysmal. The upshot is that last year, the total was about 15%. So this is almost a 5% increase uh, over 2013 in representation of people of color in children's books, um, both authors and main characters. 5% year over year, like that's a growth rate I'll take. Uh, Yeah. I would love this to not be a problem or for it to be a problem that is solved overnight, but uh, we were talking about it on the Book Riot back channel yesterday, and Kelly Jensen said uh, something about, you know, like, this puts us only six years away then. If we can keep this 5% growth rate, then we are only six years away from having 50% of children's books being by or about people of color. And and then what a world that is to live in. Yes. Um, you've talked on the show before about um, your Filipino, your boys are brown kids, and how you buy them children's books that have, you know, like trains and pigs and farm animals and stuff because there aren't children's books uh, that are easy to find or very many of them with children in them who look like your kids. Right. So that Well, it has a twofold effect on with, with, with brown children. It tells them that when they can't find themselves represented in literature, it tells them that they're not important enough to be in books because of the way that they look. But with white kids and my husband is white. So my kids, you know, are just kind of ambiguously ethnic. And I'm sure that a lot of people are just going to assume that they're, you know, Italian or whatever. But um, with white kids, it gives them the mistaken idea that kids who don't look like them are other, are, right. are wrong or bad or, or different, not to be considered, not worthy, all that. So no matter where you're coming from, whether you're white or you're not white or your kids are white or not white, there's nothing good about low numbers like that. But there's so much good about the, the fact that complaining about it for so long is starting to make a difference. It is. You know, We Need Diverse Books um, had a partnership, I believe, with First Book that took off last year where they're working together to bring more children's books by and about people of color to market. And like you're saying, this is good for everyone. Yeah. Um, we want the kids in our society, or I want it and you want it, and I think most readers want it, to be prepared for the world that they live in. And the world that they live in in contemporary America is diverse and is made up of all kinds of people who have all kinds of skin colors and all kinds of backgrounds and experiences. And we serve everyone better when we put more of those kinds of people and more of the variety of experiences in books so that If you're a white kid growing up in the middle of Kansas, you can encounter stories about people that you have never yet met and be prepared for what your life will be like when you leave your small town in the middle of Kansas and encounter diversity. You can have an open mind. You can have greater empathy because you've spent time thinking about through fiction the experiences of people who are not like you. Um, This isn't this is not just about, you know, benefiting kids who are people of color. It's hugely about that because they yeah. deserve all the things that white kids deserve in fiction. But it's it's a net good to everyone. 
Right. Like, you're not serving anyone by showing a white kid only books about himself so that when he goes out into the world and gets a job 20 years from now when the statistics of our adult population will be totally different and is surrounded by people who don't look like him and who come from cultures he's completely unfamiliar with. And how is he supposed to interact with people like that when he has no idea? There's no, like, frame of reference for people who don't look like him. He's not – he's just going to, you know – People are afraid of things they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Adults are afraid of things they don't understand and people they don't understand. And so that's going to be – I just don't want my kids to ever react like that to somebody because of the color of their skin or their cultural background or whatever. So this makes me unhappy and happy. <laughs> yeah, it's a double-edged sword with these numbers, but I'm happy to see them ticking in the right direction. And I guess now we'll start like lighting candles and sacrificing goats to continue yes. seeing that, that 5% or, or greater increase. It would be great to be sitting here next year doing math that says now we're only three years away or four years away from having, you know, the makeup of people writing and featured in children's books be representative of the children that are here. Uh, so, Amen. yeah, good things, bad things. If you want to take a deep dive into what those stats look like, the link is in the show notes. Uh, and there is plenty to chew on there. Um, one more story related to publishing's diversity problem. <laughs> <laughs> Just the one today. <laughs> the New York Public Library every year does um, the Young Lions Fiction Award, which is for emerging fiction writers uh, whose books came out, the the book that's featured has to have come out when the writer was 35 or under. Um, the New York Public Library gets a co-chair group of writers and famous people. So this <laughs> year it was co-chaired by Aziz Ansari, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Nick Brown, Leandra Medine, uh, Jenny Slate, Sloane Crosley, Sloan Sloan Crosley and Indre Rockefeller. Uh, They've picked five young novelists. um, And this says honoring the best of today's young writers. And all five of them are white. Blurg. In New York of all places. (laughs) In the New York library. Librarians are usually so great about this kind of thing. Like librarians. Oh, this confuses me. Yeah. So it's uh, Molly Antipole for The Un-Americans, Jesse Ball for Silence Once Begun, Catherine Lacey for Nobody Is Ever Missing, Andrew Ladd for What Ends, and Ben Lerner for 1004. Ben Um, Lerner. Ben Lerner was nominated a few years ago for a different book as well. He hasn't won before, but he's been nominated in the past. And that's interesting to me that you can be nominated as an emerging writer more than once twice like you emerged and then you retreated and emerged again (laughs) he's like still emerging (laughs) he's he's a butterfly rebecca (laughs) and uh i haven't read all of these books i've read a few of them so this is not to take away from the accomplishments of these writers and that's a thing i see people say constantly is like well not to knock on the nominees of course there are more than five great young writers in america (laughs) and so criticizing the process is not saying that these five people are not deserving of the honor but this is just not cool it's just not cool um if you're picking five great books it is basically impossible to uh, – oh, what was the number? I think Jeff tossed out. If you just picked five people at random in the United States, it's like a one in nine chance that all five of them would be white. Yeah. And publishing is so much whiter than the rest of the population that if you picked five books at random, you'd have a greater likelihood of randomly picking five books that were all by white people. But this just seems to be, again, a lack of attention. Um, and we don't know – 
where that lack of attention comes from. There's not a big description about this process. So it could be that no one noticed that all five of the nominees were white. It could be that they noticed but didn't think it was a problem because these really are just the five best books of the year. Oh, vomit. And and I have to say, like, if this award had a long history of doing a great job of paying attention to diversity, I would be much more willing to be like, okay, well, usually it's super diverse. And this year they concluded that the five best books just happen to be by white people. But they haven't earned that benefit of the doubt, I don't think. Having having looked at the previous year's lineups, there's some diversity, but not as much as I would like to see, especially from the New York Public Library. And uh, I just I think that it's important, like you were saying, I think it's important to take a look at a uh, an award or an institution's uh, to like take a look at the movie, not just a snapshot. So mm-hmm. like the history of how they've handled this issue, not just what they're doing at this particular moment. But the movie of this award is not great. And the movie of awards in general in publishing is super not great. Right. So and I think if, if you're going to present an award, a book award, and you're going to ignore or not be really super 100% front of the brain aware of the diversity issue, then you are failing at your job. And, you know, one of the things people said to me on Twitter about this was like, well, what do you think you're going to get when you pick movie stars instead of literary people? Like, first of all, these are smart people. White people. (laughs) Aziz Ansari has a book deal and is a, you know, smart, clever, contemporary comedian. Maggie Gyllenhaal yeah, there is evidence of Maggie Gyllenhaal's intelligence in the work that she selects and the interviews that she gives. Jenny Slate is smart and funny. Sloane Crosley is a writer. <laughs> like, you know, these are not stupid people. And uh, and if the reaction in the literary community is like that people who aren't top shelf literary fiction novelists have no business honoring books, then that's a separate problem. Um, if that's the thing that you think. I guess what I'm wondering is like, how much oversight does the NYPL have here? Because if I got to tell you, if I were picking a bunch of people, no matter how awesome they were, and telling them to create an award, I would be watching what they selected and also being like, and by the way, they can't all be white people. Yeah, you can't let people put your name on stuff, you know, without a little bit of oversight. And I also, I, I think it's weird to suggest that if people from publishing chaired this event as opposed to celebrities, it would be better because that assumes that publishing has a better track record with this, which is completely not true. Right. So <laughs> yeah, it's like not you're, like, you're not better because you work at a publishing house. You're right, not better at racism. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, it's not like publishing is doing a super great job at putting out books by people of color and honoring the accomplishments um, of writers who are people of color that, yeah, I think if you randomly selected eight publishing people and put them in charge of a literary award, there's probably just as much of a chance that if not given the guidance that they needed to have a diverse panel of honorees, they would end up with an all white panel. Um, and like we're seeing it um, in some of the programming that's coming out for Book Expo America this year, the Children's Breakfast has a white host, it has all white speakers, and it has one woman on it. And when I got mad about that, the thing that Book Expo wrote a blog post about, <laughs> <laughs> because this is now the absurdity hour. Because your life is weird. <laughs> yeah, it was about how, 
you know, they have, we have to trust book expo and give them the benefit of the doubt and wait to see, wait to see all the programming that they're going to do that will prove that they value diversity, but they don't have any track record of really valuing diversity. So they don't get the benefit of the doubt. You have to earn the benefit of the doubt. And I want to see the NYPL continue to go that way. Of course, we want to see book expo, which is our industry's premier event go that way, but just a, a bag of things here related to diversity. And maybe we should send Melinda Lowe's diversity and book reviews series to the <laughs> NYPL people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the BEA people. I'm sorry, but if Jonathan Franzen is like the headlining event of BEA being interviewed by Laura Miller from Salon. So I ne will never believe anything they say about their commitment <laughs> to diversity this year. <laughs> So I think it's time to move on <laughs> before you take your earrings all the way out. We want to thank our next sponsor. Scribd is back this week. Scribd is the subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks. And now they have comics too. You can head over to scribd.com slash book riot. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com slash book riot to get a free one month trial. They have books from major houses like HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and they have innovative small, innovative small presses like McSweeney's, CounterPoint, and Tin House. With the subscription, you'll get access to that half a million ebooks, more than 30,000 audiobooks, and some of the biggest new releases. Um, and more importantly, they make sure that you can find your way to books you're going to love. Uh, there are hundreds of curated collections made by their team of editors. And as you read, they'll tailor recommendations for you based on the books you've loved or not. So if you rate something like one star, they'll take that into consideration as they generate other recommendations for you. Go to scribd.com slash book riot right now, and they'll set you up with a free month to get started. So that's 30 days of unlimited reading and listening and now comics reading, and you'll be supporting book riot. So that's a win win scribd.com slash book riot. They have some great books there that I've really loved. Um, I think I mentioned last week, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown uh, is one of their audio books. I read that in print, but I think it would be great on audio. Uh, they've got what I talk about when I talk about running, which is Haruki Murakami. Bad Feminist is on there, uh, which Amanda... All of Tiffany Rice's books are on there. Yes, Tiffany Rice's like, <laughs> I read all of the Red Quartet on script. Oh, nice. I didn't realize that's where you were reading them. Uh, there's Ian Fleming, The Spy Who Loved Me, So You Can Kick It with James Bond. Uh, this is the story of A Happy Marriage by Ann Patchett. There's Neil Gaiman. There's Michael Chabon. All sorts of stuff. So check out scribd.com slash book riot. Get your free one month trial of unlimited reading and audiobooks and comics. Let us know what you find when you do also, since we're always on the lookout as well. Uh, and thanks to Scribd for sponsoring the show. This next piece of news is weird news. It is. Do you want Welcome to... back to the Absurdity Hour. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell us about the weird news, Amanda. Okay, so John Green, who is, of course, the author, the author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns and all that, was selling on his website a quote from Paper Towns. Uh, the quote is, I'm in love with cities I've never been to and people I've never met. And it was on a poster designed by one of the, uh, the members of his uh, fandom or whatever. And then he was on... Reddit's copyright subreddit and found out that he never wrote that line. The <laughs> line was written by a 13-year-old girl on Tumblr that was then stolen and put on a poster and sold in his store. So he did a video <laughs> about it, um, revealing this. And of course, he didn't do it on purpose. I'm not saying that at all. It's just a, you should watch the video. It's funny. We'll put a link to it. But 
Um, he's he's paying the girl back royalties for the the dollars that he owes her from taking <laughs> accidentally stealing her line from Tumblr, <laughs> and is using the opportunity to start a conversation about intellectual property. Which this man, this is so weird. It's so weird. How do you not know that you didn't write that line? Like, yeah, he says here. So just to be clear, we've been selling a poster with a quotation attributed to me that was in fact written by a thir- a thirteen year old nerd fighter. Her name is Melody Trong. How? I believe. Okay, first off, I believe John Green that this was an accident. Oh yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> because if you did this kind of thing maliciously, if you intentionally stole fan art to profit from, you would not then make a video about how you made this discovery and are now paying the person back royalties. Like, I think that John Green is very clever and knows what he's doing on the internet, but he did not mastermind a thing where he stole this and then no. manufactured it to look like it was an accident. And now he's the good guy who's doing these. Like, people have some crazy conspiracy theories about him. That and is so... He doesn't need the, like, $20 that has been generated by this poster that he sells on his website. Right. But it's so strange to me that, like, people – that this girl made fan art and that DFTBA, which is his company that that stands for Don't Forget to Be Awesome – that they started selling it, just assuming that it was a quote from Paper Towns. Like at some point it got misattributed. And by the time DFTBA and John Green came across it, it must have had this quote on it and then said Paper Towns, like someone who's not Melody Trong added that at some point on the internet, that this was a John Green quote. And that no one at DFTBA was like, oh, maybe we should make sure that that's in the book first. Right. And I love that to find out if he had actually written that line, he pirated a copy of Paper Towns and did a control F search for it so he could see if it's anywhere in the book. And if not, <laughs> there it is. Just not so much. Oh, so, John Green. I mean, this could have been, it could have gone worse, right? Like, yes. They could have just taken the poster out of the DFTBA store, but it seems like they're going to continue to sell it, even though it's not a John Green quote. <laughs> Well, now it's like a piece of John Green, I don't know, like paraphernalia. I know. So if you bought one of these, like, you know, prior to yesterday, then you should hold on to it and like put the date on it. And now you have a weird piece of John Green collector stuff that's not actually John Green. But this Melody Trong seems to be, you know, artistic. And this is a nice thing. I'm in love with cities I've never been to and people I've never met. Like, she's probably going to have a career. So you should hold on to it. Yes. As I knew her when she was young, even though I bought it because I thought it was John Green. I knew her when she was John Green. (laughs) I don't know if we've had a weirder story. (laughs) I don't think so. So, you know, good job, John Green, on rectifying this and coming clean about it. Like, I do appreciate that he didn't just cut her a check, but that he talked about it publicly and that he's using this for you know, some public good, uh, tons. I think it bothers him. This <laughs> happened. Like in the video, he gets to like all worked up and starts pulling his hair out. Like he does. And, like uh, he goes, I am the thief and just pulls at his hair. I mean, you would feel like a jerk, right? Like, Oh yeah. He's got to feel weird about this whole thing. Like I know I would lay awake at night if 
I had made this mistake because I've laid awake at night thinking about other mistakes and been like, how did I even, how did this happen? Like, you know, they're having some conversations in the DFTBA conference room now that are about like, oh yeah, next time before we sell posters, we should make sure the quotes are in the book. Let's go and Google it before we... I mean, the internet being what it is, like, are there people walking around with this quote tattooed on them thinking they have a John Green quote tattooed on them? Oh, <laughs> I want to know. It's just so great. And then he found out about it on a Reddit subchannel. It's just my favorite. Like, this thing is probably all over Pinterest. I've been tempted to search Pinterest and see how many different designs of this quote there are. And, like, it's been out there. And so now that it's out there with his name on it, they're probably never... Actually, I'm confident they'll never be able to correct that oh, all no. the way. Um, in the minds of many users of the internet, this is forever a John Green quote. And it's just going to be replicated. Someone's going to see it on someone's Pinterest board and make their own design of this quote. And it's just going to go on and on and on and on. It's, what a weird thing. What a weird problem to have to like, this is hashtag internet problem. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, just all, all the way around a strange story, but interesting. And I'm glad he's talking about it. It's definitely worth a conversation about how things get attributed and misattributed online, uh, especially on Tumblr. So that's good. Uh, in addition to John Green, we have a hero of the week this week. This is also huge and awesome. Uh, Princeton University just inherited $300 million worth of rare books. From a collection of only 2,500 books, which yeah. I think is so fascinating. That is a huge value per book. Yes. Uh, from a Princeton alumnus named William H. Scheid. He's a graduate. He was a graduate of Princeton University, and he passed away last year, leaving his valuable rare book collection to his alma mater. Um Princeton's Firestone Library has held the collection since 1959, but now they officially own it. Um, and this included... A Gutenberg Bible. The first six editions of the Bible. Yeah. The um, original printing of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Musical manuscripts um, and sketchbooks from Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, Schubert, and Wagner. <laughs> like A speech about slavery by Abraham Lincoln written in his own handwriting. Yeah. I need someone to now write a biography or at least a long read about William H. Scheid. And Where how, did he get all this stuff? Right, like, was this family money? Have these, like, did did he just accumulate and collect these things? Or, like, did this 1455 Gutenberg Bible get passed down through generations of his family? What is the story? <laughs> Who are you? Also, does he have any single sons that are in need of a redheaded <laughs> wife? <laughs> I will sister wife that stuff right here. <laughs> you heard it here first, Paul. <laughs> We will be your sister wives, single sons of William H. Scheid. Only if I get to touch the Gutenberg. I don't even Not know. Not a euphemism. Not a euphemism. <laughs> I don't even know how to bounce back from that, so I'm just going to move on. Uh, Toni Morrison turned 84 yesterday, and for reasons of simply that we love her, I wish to wish Toni Morrison a happy birthday. Many happy returns. Many, many. Please just live forever. Please. Tony be immortal. <laughs> if anyone is going to turn out to be immortal, it's going to be Toni Morrison. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, I'm. I will believe that, and then I will be the like first subscriber to her new religion. <laughs> um, so yay, Toni Morrison! Happy birthday to you. Um, a couple of you guys have asked us when the Book Riot Live tickets are going on sale. So if you mentioned, or if you missed the site, or if you mentioned. Ugh, 
-hmm. trouble speaking multiple times today. I'm too excited about Toni Morrison. Uh, If you missed the show last week, you can uh, watch out for the launch of Book Riot Live ticket sales at 1 p.m. on March 10th. Sadly, Toni Morrison will not be joining us. But we do have a great lineup of authors that have already said yes. And so you'll be able to see those. And by March 10th, we will have even more. Uh, So stay tuned for that in New York, November 7th and 8th. Uh, You want to talk about new books? Sure. Oh, I haven't read either of those. You've read both of these, though. They're so good. Uh, So the first (laughs) is Welcome to Braggsville by T. Geronimo Johnson. Uh, It's my pick this week for Read It Like It's Hot on our YouTube channel. Uh, This is it's great. Uh, this is a novel about a white kid who grows up in Braggsville, Georgia, which is a small town, and he goes as far away as he can possibly go in terms of geography and culture by going to college at UC Berkeley. Uh, he makes this diverse group of friends who are into the kinds of things that stereotypical students at UC Berkeley are into. And uh, when it, and like, this is satire, and so all of these elements are very played up. Um, and one day in class, it turns, it comes out that in Braggsville, they still do a Civil War reenactment every year to celebrate the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their professor suggests that uh, the kid's name is Darren, that he and his friends go back um, to observe the Civil War reenactment over spring break. And they take it a few steps further and decide they're going to protest the reenactment by way of what they call a performative intervention, uh, which they're going to dress up like slaves and march out into the Civil War reenactment and stage a fake lynching. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, Darren is like not wanting to think of his family and his friends and his hometown and himself as racist, but he's calling home to be like, mom and dad, you have to hide those uh, like black Sambo statues that normally sit in the front yard because I'm bringing my friends home and one of them is black. Uh, (laughs) So they go back to Braggsville for the Civil War reenactment and they attempt their performative intervention. And as no surprise at all, things do not go smoothly. Uh, There is a healthy dose of absurdity and also some tragedy. And it's really surprising. I I like gasped out out loud uh, at a couple of the directions that Johnson takes the story. Um, This is really excellent satire. It's funny. It's pointed. It's not pedantic. uh, It's very absorbing. And the book is interesting structurally. There are a couple different styles of writing that come up and he imagines a thesis that the main kid would have written about their performative interventions. Wow. And the text of that appears in the book as well. Um, This is just a a totally fresh voice in American fiction, and I loved it so much. Uh, Also out this week, and it feels like we've been talking about this one forever because I love her, uh, is Find Me by Laura Vandenberg. If you liked Station Eleven, go buy this book right now. Uh, It's about a, a young woman named Joy whose life is the opposite of Joy. She's been working the night shift at a grocery store. She is addicted to cough syrup. Um, But then an epidemic sweeps the United States and she appears to be immune. So she is in a former hospital with a bunch of the other people who are immune. And they're ostensibly under the care of doctors and nurses who are ostensibly conducting research on them to um, determine how their immunity can be used to inoculate other people and maybe to treat the disease in the people who haven't died from it yet. Uh, She is not happy with her life situation there. And she sees an internet video 
that has a woman in it that she identifies as her birth mother. So she sets out, like she breaks out of the hospital and sets out on this journey across the United States to find her birth mother going through all of these destroyed towns and kind of seeing the wreckage that this epidemic has wrought. Um, it's so fresh and so smart. And I love, I just love the voice of it. Um, and Salon called her America's best young writer uh, this week. I'm trying not to hate her for being younger than I am. <laughs> um, it's really, really wonderful. Totally stands on its own. You don't have to have loved, you know, Station Eleven. But I think this is the logical next read for all the people who loved Emily Mandel last year. Those are my picks. <laughs> this is our show. Thanks for being here for the hour of absurdity with me, Amanda. No problem. <laughs> um, I'm always here for you for absurdity. You can find the show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast. Shoot us um, an email, thoughts, questions. Jeff and I are going to do an Ask Me Anything show for the 100th episode in a few weeks. So whatever you want to ask, we'll consider answering. You can send that to podcast at bookriot.com. Find Book Riot all over social media. If you want to rate or review the show on iTunes, we would be most appreciated of that and it helps other people find it you can find amanda on twitter at i'm amanda nelson i am at rebecca shinsky s-c-h-i-n-s-k-y thank you to squarespace and scribd for sponsoring the shows this week all of the details will be in the show notes you can always shout us out if you have other thoughts or questions and i think that's it awesome so we'll see you next week bye